y'all. So you are tuned in to getting to the root of it with Venus Roots, a.k.a. me, your host, your facilitator, and your storyteller, at least for this journey. And I'm so hyped, not only about the podcast in and out of itself, but of the first person we're having here. For me, a lot of folks know me through my work online, talking a lot of that shit. Um, But for me, one of the people that sort of inspired me and catalyzed me to get to this place many years ago is actually my first guest. So welcome, Mars. Hey, I'm so excited to be here. And we just in my living room sipping on some Crown Royale. Some Crown Royale. Happy Friday. Getting to the root of it on this Friday. And welcoming Gemini season. So, Mars, for people who've never come across you, where do you want to take their mind to sort of begin understanding who you are as an artist and a thinker? Uh, Honestly, if I were to just, like, define, like, myself and just my work as a being I'm just someone that just works through experiences and I just love to showcase those experiences on whatever platform that I might have on the time whether it's through visuals or through writings Um, I would just like to label myself as a documenter because I work mostly on my environment and just my surroundings in general because they just brought me to the person that I am today So I feel like my work and just what I believe in or what I'm advocating for just reflects that. That's that's the tea on that. Um, So Mars, I met you a couple of years ago. um, And when I first encountered you was through an art collective dedicated for queer people of color, gender non-binary folks, trans folks. Um, So... For me, when I think of you, I really think of you as like one of the pioneering artists and curators who thought of how do we use social media to cultivate intentional communities, right? Um, That was back then in 2015, first through Tumblr and then through Instagram. Now it's 2019. So, you know, some contexts are different. But um, what amazes me about you is that you did this in your early teen years and um, you had you had and have such a sharp political voice. You know, it's not just like you're this brilliant artist, visual, you know, you, that you're amazing at archiving um, our histories and our realities, but it's also like layered and coupled with, honestly, just the tea that so many people are afraid to spill, straight up. So um, on that, can you tell me a little bit about being the co-founder of Arho Collective? What drove you there tell me a little bit about that process so with me um in my early teens i usually use social media well i guess a lot of gen z or millennials can relate to that as just a means of escapism just growing in a very um strict and very polarized west indian household it's a little bit difficult to kind of just voice your opinions or even just navigate through just being a black femme, well, a queer black femme in just such a strict uh, first generation West Indian space. So that was how, well, that was what initially led me to start experience, well, experimenting with uh, the means of online platforms and social media. I felt like it was very easy to collectivize on there as well, 
which kind of led me to just meet a lot of people that I most likely have no chance of meeting in terms of real life. But yeah, I would say that just being online really taught me and just navigated me through like just like the pre-stages of Art Ho and just like collectivizing on an online platform. Uh, that's what our... I met Jam, which is the other co-founder of Art Ho, and literally just on some, just exchanging our our experiences as being like a non-binary femme on social media. Jam is from Toronto. I live all the way in Miami, but like we still became like we well we still just like solidified such um such a strong bond through Tumblr, um, which is where we first met. Um, just like navigating just like through our black femme experiences and sharing a love of art, um, shared views of politics, uh, and just our experiences in general. We had, at first with Art Ho, it started as a movement that we facilitated on Tumblr. So initially it was just like creating visibility around um, black and brown or just artists of color or mainly kids of color and people of color to just, because there was not really, there is a lack of visibility of just like people of color in general in the media. So we just wanted to create a, um, a source of visibili visibility for them in terms of Tumblr. So we started like this movement. Well, we started a tag first and that tag started I'm sorry, I'm just getting all over the place. No, it's <laughs> perfect. Uh, so what initially first started it, and then we brought it into a whole tag, was that we both had, like, a thing with superimposing ourselves onto artworks. But then uh, it became a little bit politicized because we realized that we were imposing ourselves onto historically white paintings and using our black bodies. So with the super imposition, a lot of people started doing that. So at first the tag started to highlight um, just like um, people of color and their selfies just to create visibility for them. And then it became less more towards just pictures and more towards like jobs, art, businesses that people of color had, but we all kept it under like the same art ho tag. So we would check the art ho tag every day and reblog people. And then it got to a point because we wanted to better facilitate like the whole tag because it was getting so much uh, recognition and visibility so that we created a Tumblr for it at first. And that became easier to kind of just like reflect um, our audience. Like we were just reblogging artists of color. But at the same time, we realized that it wasn't really structured. Uh, it was just a tag, but like a tag can only do so much. And during that time, that's when we also met other people as well who kind of had the same vision for us because, like, we were all just, like, artists of color trying to get our work out there and using social media because it's so accessible to get our work out there. So we were all kind of getting recognition. But we realized that it wasn't really structured because it was just, like, this loosely facilitated movement towards Tumblr where we, re we would reblog things, which could only go so far. I felt like um, it wasn't structured in terms of, like, just what we were trying to put out there. So that's when, um, during the summer, I proposed the Instagram because I feel like a lot of people weren't using Tumblr and Instagram was um, just starting to be popping. So a lot of people were using, I mean, we're usually used to social media being more like, how do I call it? 
not really as visual, just like just quick phrases or what you're doing, just quick updates. And now we finally had a visual um, platform that can also serve as an online dialogue because it's so accessible to the point where a lot of people can have a social media if they possess the means of technology to have a social media. So that's when we created the Instagram and that's when it became like an online curation platform for artists of color. And then we started hosting uh, submissions to just have people on <coughs> the Instagram. But mostly I would say that we, social media has provided a means of just carrying an accessible um, online conversation that a lot of people can just partake in. And then like, you just, you can just navigate and just see through the eyes of other people's experiences, uh, like without like being within range of the person. So I have a quick, you know, like hearing your talk um, and also like being part of, you know, being young and being like politicized, um, both by the captions, information I was taking in, and of course like, the images I was taking in, like just absorbing them in my psyche. Um, I'm really curious to hear from you, like how you think that, you know, social media and these online platforms, like you said, kind of are like this like free access and in some way have uplifted the voice and image of our people, but at the same time have commodified black and brown bodies in a very similar pattern that institutions have often done so. Um, I'm curious to hear, about that sort of contradiction, you know, from you, how you've explored it, yeah. Contemporary capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Always. So yeah, so you have to realize, and what I've also realized when, just when Art Ho was just being started and just growing, is that when you put black and brown bodies out there, although it's accessible, it's accessible to the point where it can often get exploited, which is what a lot of online collectives and even Arho was going through as well. So a lot of people wanted to, oh, we about to get into some tea. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's this trend of just exploiting the black and brown narrative. Um, that's evident in Vice, ID, even Days, just a lot of online platforms in general. Uh, there's not really a lot of empathy for the black and brown experience. It's really just using that narrative to garner views and to also capitalize off of that narrative because people just deem it as inch. I feel like the way people see it, online platforms kind of see like black and brown narratives as like an exhibition at the zoo. Like it's amazing to look at, it's amazing to profit off of, but I mean, they really just, just see us as like a means to like commodify off of, um, even just down to like creating think pieces. They would just use our words under the guise of exposure but I mean, everyone knows that exposure doesn't pay the bills. So often at times, like, you know, we're putting that artwork out there. And at first, we, I guess we thought that the exposure was deserved and that we were getting 
were garnering more of a following through it and that we weren't getting exploited. And we were just like, this is an opportunity for us to impose black and brown bodies into these historically white spaces and to kind of just like decolonize like the vicinity. But in reality, like we're all, I realized that we were all just like up at night, like just kind of draft like think pieces for these brands that are just like using our words to post articles about it. And then um, just like they don't even intend of just like giving us the resources to fund our collective, mm -hmm. which you don't even realize until later where you're just like, I can't believe that I did all of this work to create a think piece or show our narrative or give them artist suggestions. And it's like we don't even get any resources for these said artists. So it just gives room for a lot, a lot of ex exploitation or just like a lot of misconstruing as well. Yeah, I feel like also part of that is like, you know, it's like, what does that exposure really mean if it's not shifting, you know, even if it's like black and brown bodies in these white institutions, if it's like not shifting the sort of concentrations of power in any way, culturally, economically, socially, um, it's just like what concerns me the most. I feel, you know, and I, I like put it, posted a little tweet about this that ended up getting like mad traction and part of what I was saying is, you know, we try to be these radical black and brown queer artists, um, but because the sort of gig and artist economy is so precarious, we end up falling into the traps where we have to, like for the sake of content, you know, which can mean think pieces, captions, you yeah. know, any of that, uh, we have to rehash trauma. Like, it's kind of like what you said, like the zoo, you know, I've noticed that if I post a caption where I'm really like, deconstructing some trauma that for me as an individual is difficult to process like yeah it is cathartic but up to a certain point right and then you see that it gets so much attention so many likes so many comments repost and all these things and it's like that's what people like you know like that's almost like what sells like a pain your and trauma. trauma of black and brown people but you know in that exchange there isn't like really a sense of healing being brought to the table right right and at the same time with that um, commodifying of trauma, um, people start, or just online platforms in general, just start to politicize the experience of just being a black femme. Just everything from being down to like, um, you know, things like wearing green braids or just like, you know, like wearing colorful braids on my Instagram, like people would see it as like a political statement. Like what's a political statement in me just being a black femme with green hair? But they just see you off of your trauma and not what you have to offer and they're not willing to give you the resources so that you can do what you're aiming to offer mm -hmm. as well. Um, also, like when I think of all of this, what do you feel is at stake for the mental health of emerging young artists of color, particularly black femmes? I can't really speak on the mental health of black femmes, but I know like just with social media in general, it's a really difficult experience to just navigate through. I feel like s social media is valid in a sense where I feel like we're exposed to just a range of people that look like us, but at the same time, when you commodify off of black and brown bodies, you kind of want to get black and brown bodies that sell. So you tr try your best to kind of just like imitate that or just like imitate the black experience 
through the lens of what social media thinks the black experience is like, Mm -hmm. which I feel is kind of toxic. But it's just really hard just existing as an artist of color, just like a black femme artist, especially in times where people aren't willing to give you the rate that you deserve or give you the time of day for your work or even give you credit. Like I've had experiences with large brands and publications and magazines reposting my work but not crediting me. Mm -hmm. And then when I tell them to credit me, they usually give me some reason about how they find it on Pinterest or online. (laughs) But like, I mean, I I would look up, I'm crazy. I would look it up. And like, there's always a link back to like my Tumblr or Mm -hmm. my Instagram. And there's always like, there's people that would tell them that, you know, that's my work for like two weeks and they still would ignore it until I, I would have to step in and be like, all right, like credit me. So, you know, and something with that, on that tip that you have talked about and a lot of other people, you know, bring to light is like, you know, how does our social media like realm also reinforce like these racial hierarchies, even amongst people of color, right? Like you've been very adamant about talking about how light-skinned black women or light-skinned people of color be getting treated even in like this creative sort of quote-unquote free radical tip versus black-skinned women and what actual opportunities come through to their way can you talk a little bit more about that just build a thesis like (laughs) you know we're looking at each other and it's like oh word Yeah, and that's why sometimes, like, when it comes to that, sometimes I just really have to put social media down because it's just really frustrating. Um, so even, okay, so if we're going to, let's bring it back to Art Ho. Just even with that, like, um, just in my experience with receiving credit, people would usually, like, or publications in general would just, like, credit the movement with, like, Amanla or Willow with Amanla I can really understand because Amanla was part of it uh, she was an integral part but it's still just like you know like Jam and I co-founded it and like you know like did the whole Instagram but it's just like I've never met Willow before mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems to be a thing that like a lot of like magazines caught up on and then everyone just started just putting Willow's name there but I've never met Willow but yeah, it's just like even coming down to resources are another thing, but even coming down towards just even receiving credit. I know I'm not dark skin, but I'm not light skin either. And just navigating through that with social media, like it's just really been a little difficult in terms of just like receiving like the valid credit that I get in terms of uh my work. And every time I feel like I would vocalize those feelings instead of just being, well, instead of it just being immediately corrected or addressed, like people would just pay me out to just like, um, how do I explain it? People just like, pay me out to just be like the whiny, yeah, the dramatic, you know, like angry the, the black drama woman. queen. Duh. Yeah. And it kind of hurts because it's not even like I'm demanding resources. It's just like coming down to even like just credit in general because it's like something it's like my baby because I did it when I was 14 and I was navigating through like a lot of things. And now I'm 19 now. And it's something that I've just brought from the ground up with really close peers and just like, you know, miss school for like just it's just been such an integral part of just like um, character development for me and just growing up in general 
and I just don't even receive credit. Or yeah, it's like well, you're not even asking for a million dollars. Like you're not. really not asking for much. It's just like just meet me with some baseline acknowledgement and visibility that I deserve for the labor that I've been holding down for so long. Yeah, and you know, you don't want to be that person that kind of like vocalize like vocalizes the amount of labor that you put towards a project because you're just afraid of coming across as, you know, melodramatic. Mm -hmm. And I know like my first intention in general isn't to receive accolades for the labor I've done. It's to collectivize. Like that's the reason why I've started Art Ho in general. Like that's the reason why I'm not really vocal about this particular subject because like my main aspiration and my main goal in general is to create a safe space for artists of color so that they can have a dialogue about their work. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it just wouldn't hurt to just be recognized for my my contributions towards, like, just an online platform, but also facilitating the movement of online collectives and, like, artistic cyber renaissance that was just being experienced throughout Mm -hmm. that time. And I think, like, you know, now that we're talking about labor, um, you know, I, you know, like, on one end, I'm totally hearing what you're saying, where it's like, I mean, nah, I, like, founded a collective. It wasn't really about me, Mars, the individual. But we also know so well that this economic social system thrives off of our labor and particularly not compensating that labor to any regard like I'm not even talking about wages which is like kind of what we've been getting at it's like I'm not even willing to recognize all the labor that you're holding down I don't value your labor and it's like how does that trickle down into how we value ourselves as artists as humans as femmes as just you know people going against the status quo or attempting to Um, which then, you know, kind of sort of brings me to, like, my next point when I think of the work that you do, kind of now the work that I'm sort of involved in is, like, I feel, you know, because of this whole commodification, we're constantly, like, straddling the line between being, like, as radical and truthful as we want to be and doing art and expressing that in mediums that sound true, but also straddling that the line between that and like these corporate brand partnerships or sponsorships or sort of like quote unquote opportunities, right? Um, you know, I, I'm always curious to hear from you because you've been in it for a minute now. You know, I think people, you know, like hearing you talk earlier where you're like kind of describing the purpose of Art Ho or like a collective for artists of color. Now it sounds so like, you know, it sounds like all the check marks, right? I don't think people realize like back in 2015, that was unheard of, you know, like that was just not the platform. It really was revolutionary. It was really building something different and needed. You know, now everyone does it, right? Like now it's not, you know, 2019 is a whole different tip. But back in 2015, and that sort of laid the groundwork for a lot of people to build their careers off of, to, you know, get inspired and do their own thing back home or, you know, whatever it was. So, you know, when it comes to, like, the contradiction and the tension of, like, being radical, owning our identities, you know, disrupting, but also recognizing who has a coin, you know, what have been some sort of interventions or just some reflections in hindsight that you 
you know, you, you wish that you knew or that you want people to know who are kind of straddling that. I've realized when you tie your work or just like your artistic being in general to capitalism, you have to, no matter how hard you try it, in some way you're making yourself more palatable towards like the audience that is receiving that content. And in general, that audience is um, a white audience. A lot of corporations are owned by white people in power. So even though that, even though it's proposed that they're giving you a space to navigate through your experiences, but also build your platform at the same way, there's also the stress that comes with it because you're constantly trying to make yourself more palatable in the eyes of business. And I've, it always, it took me a long time to just like kind of dissect this, but it just baffles me how your artistic purpose is just tied to a value, like a monetary value. Sometimes I think about it just even like just selling thing pieces or just commissioning artwork or curating spaces for people, like just putting a value on your work and then just being insecure about that value. I've realized that just working with corporations and predominantly white publications, there's, well, me, myself, and I know we have, as a collective and other collectives as well, you kind of develop a sense of insecurity about what your value is because sometimes you propose things and if you don't have the resources to have like an agent or a lawyer, they try to take advantage of you. And it's just been a lot of unlearning and navigating through that and just like realizing our value and just like putting our foot down, especially in the eyes of just like people in power because we don't have resources. It's mm-hmm. these people that have resources, but just realizing just the worth and power that we have. You know, I think, word, first of all, um, you know, part of that like has me thinking like, you know, in that and not knowing our value because it's it's such a, it's such a weird thing to ask yourself as an individual or as a being and then as an artist, as a creative, as a thinker, as an intellectual, like how do I, what's the dollar value to this, right? Because for us, it's personal, you know, like most of these things are not just intellectual or artistic exercises. It's like, it's literally. You're literally putting your trauma at the forefront. Exactly. And then to survive, you have to come modify it. Exactly. Sometimes I want to say, like, fuck all these publications, fuck these corporations, because then also what's happening behind the scenes is, like, you know, there so many of them, I want to say almost all of them, have, like, this really pro-black, pro-brown, blah, 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 blase, blase publication, and it looks real good on paper, um, and they feature the right people, but then the people who are running, benefiting, profiting off of these same publications are people who have, who are investors or CEOs in, like, a tear gas company you know like that's what's happening at the Whitney Museum right now and it's like you know it's not just museums it's not just publications this is like that's how the system is built up you know they've caught on that we are extremely profitable and they've known that since like you know Atlantic slave trade and be and before that you know like that's the whole product of colonialism and imperialism it's like oh they're profitable and we actually ain't got to give them shit in return so now when you think of all of this and like process it, you know, would would you have been like, fuck all these all these publications? Kind of what's your sense when you think back honestly on that? 
So this brings me to this other um, publication that I used to work for. It's called Ricky Mag. Um, the editor-in-chief was Tavi. Um, okay, so basically what I'm getting at with Ricky Mad, for those who don't know who Ricky Mag is, they're pretty much like an online platform for teenage girls, teenage femmes. Um, I started following Ricky Mag when I was 12. Like, it was literally that space. Like, you know, I went to an inner city school. It was literally, like, just, like, my headspace. Like, I would go home, like, after all that work, after, all, like, that school day and just being at home. Like, I would go on, on that site and listen to the play the playlist on 8-tracks and whatever. But something that was really interesting is I've been a fan for a long time, and then I became a contributor. But then I stopped contributing for a while because I got busy with Arho and school. But the editor-in-chief just which is Tavi, she just released the last editor statement because um, Ricky's no more anymore. That's like the last one, which was kind of like emotional for me. But I remember in the editor statement, she was pretty much just saying how the reason why Ricky Mag kind of went down is because they never received any. Well, they have, but she realized how she didn't want Ricky Mag to largely be tied to big investors because with big investors, comes um the incorporation of those investors ideas to make that well what they see as like your business more profitable and more palatable to a wider audience so that it can generate more money so in other words she didn't want rookie mag to get sold out because she didn't want it to just be a commodity influenced by the opinions and ideas and reworkings of like large investors who don't get the minds of teenage girls to run a business and she kept Rookie Mag independent for that long, but it just got to a point where she, like, she just needs to focus on her personal life, and she just, well, it's done now. But it just made me think about just my experiences with Art Home in general, because, mind you, this is, like, the first, like, magazine job that I kind of had. Like, this was, like, my first photography job. So it just made me think about my experiences with Art Home in general, because we've largely, even though we've received funds and help from other, like, third-party um, investors or just like brands or projects in general, we've largely tried to keep like an independent sort of running in terms of Art Ho. Uh, we largely try to do like galleries or just like cr create our own spaces to kind of generate money towards our fund. And then we use those funds to just like help other people or just like, for example, um, we did something with like just helping people um, get what's it called, the Creative Cloud for Adobe, like art students, because, you know, it's expensive, so we did something for that as well. So just, like, largely, like, just being independent and just, <laughs> just like, ran into the microphone. <laughs> but just largely being independent and realizing our worth and just realizing just, like, how much of an audience that we actually do have, because we don't see it at first. And I wish I could have told myself that when I was younger, because, like, when I was, like, you know, when you're 16 and, like, Days is writing an article for you, you're just like, oh, my God, yeah, I'm popping. But now you're just like, <laughs> <laughs> now it's like you realize you're getting people to see that article. Like, you're getting your audience to tap into that article. So, technically, you're giving more of an audience to them. Like, you're getting viewers to them because you're taking your collective, you're taking the audience that your collective has worked hard to generate and giving them that audience to view the story. 
<sighs> and that's just tea. And that's just that on that. That is just a little basic class on contemporary late capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Hearing you talk, like, my mind is, you know, in a thousand places. I think especially, like, considering my own involvement with fem power that you're also part of. Um, bloop. Hey. <laughs> um, I think even independent of Art Ho, but also just you have a pretty large following, right? Like you have your own audience that's like following you, keeping track of like what you're saying, what you're putting out. After the Notre Dame, uh, Notre Dame <laughs> um, incident in, in Paris, you know, there was all types of opinions online. And I always, you know, something I really respect and admire about you as like a comrade is like, you're actually not going to back down, sugarcoat, filter, uh, you know, fluff, fluff, anything that you have to say, despite the fact that you have a really, you know, like fat following. And the reality is like usually what happens in that sort of like hierarchy is as you move on up that sort of quote unquote ladder, you know, and you move up that that preset hierarchy your values kind of become secondary and like shrink over time. And, you know, you're one of the few people I've seen where like you continue to build a platform, but like you're actually not like you're not muting the shit talking at all. You know, we just uh, don't have enough of that, you know, like for the sake of appeasing to corporations, to brands, to so and so, to people who might have particular friends you know, you keep certain things shush. And it's like, oh, I don't want to be so extra. Because if, like, after all these years, like, you know, do people still try you? Do people still come on some <laughs> bullshit? Like, do, do people still, like, oh, this is racist. Like, you hate white people. You know, like, does it ever stop? <laughs> Listen, I'm an Aries, so people be trying me every single day. Mm. But I do remember being extra vocal about it when I was younger, but I don't want to say that I become desensitized to most issues. It's just that when you have a large following, um, you just don't want to receive like 20,000 discourses. Even like I posted a meme yesterday and then it's just like, I didn't even read the comments. <laughs> like It's just like mad people like, you know, pro-lifers just having like a whole mm, discourse. And I'm no. like, I'm not even gonna, no. it gets to a point where it's like, you'll engage for to a certain extent like I'll say what I have to say but like I'm not gonna waste my time like arguing with like Sally in Kansas City like she's yeah. obviously not gonna get it yeah those people are not like the most movable and also it's like it brings up the topic of like boundaries like reminding ourselves that we're worthy of boundaries like you know I've had that where it's like if I say some you know I actually I like remember posting some stuff around like you know against uh, U.S. intervention in Venezuela, and you know p my DMs were crazy. It was it was insanity, you know, and some personal claims, like some just like abstract claims, like people just want to talk all day, and it's kind of like that assumption of like you owe me something, like you, you know. I think kind of as you become more visible and more of a commodity, you become like a property, right, of sorts. Like yeah, people expect you to just use your voice in general to talk about um certain subjects and how do i put this it's really just like they don't expect you they don't see you 
I don't want to be like, I'm not trying to sound like melodramatic, but it's like when you're like become someone that's like very highly visible on social media or someone that's like kind of known on social media, a lot of people expect your input, like input for certain things, but they don't really like see you enough as human as like someone that has like someone that needs to heal from things. Like it's very like, for example, like just like, a case of like someone like a black femme getting shot and killed by law enforcement and then people expect you to talk about it without even giving you the chance to heal and process things like I just feel like you're just denied that right to just like sit there and just process things because because sometimes I don't even want to see that like sometimes I just mm-hmm. want to be alone and think about the situation and how it affects my experience as a black femme and then I feel like with social media and especially because it's ties to just capitalism in general, like people are ex- always expecting a consistent flow of content mm-hmm. like, and they, just a consistent flow of opinions. And they don't even realize the trauma that comes from forming those opinions. Like I don't I feel like people or even online publications in general, like they think it's cute or whatever when they when we go into like our little like, um, you, you know, I guess they call it think pieces of our experiences as being a people of color um and its relation to whatever said situation that happened this time and it's like they don't even see you as a whole human being that has to process and heal from what that has happened and how that experience affects you like I feel like with social media in general and just having a following or just having a collective that has ties to an online publication that's constantly like seeing you as a source of like resources for that publication like it's really just like, like, you know, just what we said earlier, just a commodity or just commodifying like our trauma, just like not giving us a chance to heal. And on, and I feel like on top of that, it's like not only does it not allow us to heal and it's like not it's it's not even like our pain or it's just like our individual history. It's like that shit's affecting our family dynamics, you yeah. know, like like we're both Caribbean. So it's like we already know, you know that it's not just like a oh, quote-unquote trauma or like oh that's painful or that's violence it's like that literally has immediate material effects on like how our parents relate to us how our siblings like yeah. all of that that's you know that doesn't make it to the think piece right like they only want like certain surface level things that yeah. sell and it's like you know no one's asking you about like it's literally like generational healing that we're trying to build out you know when i i talk to my family sometimes they're like you're just on this like crazy you know, you know, like you're just so radical and it's like, nah, like a lot of the things that we're saying to each other, how we are hurting one another is because of these systems. It's not like it just they suck or it's just like, oh, and we're like working class or go to shitty schools. It's not just that. It has such real deep effects on yeah. all of us, all of us, you know, um, that it's like it's not only rehashing my trauma, it's like literally all of us right our experiences are so glamorized we don't people don't see us as people that are capable to heal from those experiences so mars i'm you know bringing it back to where we at um you know you are south florida broward type of kid broward 954 (laughs) 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 county Uh, line (laughs) (laughs) but you know for me as someone who's like been based in Miami their entire life you know more recently I've been hearing a lot of like Miami's popping off you know Miami's on the come up Miami's x y and z but I think for people like us when we hear that what we're really hearing is like 
gentrification and displacement yeah has arrived and they're ready <laughs> to stay she's here yeah <laughs> she made it um you know and it's like when when you kind of hear these things or like just when you're going to you know when you're living your life down here in south florida what do you feel is like the is more so like the political reality and the reality of the creative infrastructure down here as you see it and like what do you think or foresee the the future of it can actually be we about to get into some tea <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so i feel like when it comes to just cities in general popping off of course that's when gentrification and displacement comes in we're already seeing that with little haiti we're already seeing that with winwood like now there's like one bedroom houses that are 1k a month in little haiti because of that so called gentrification but and also just like climate change <laughs> gentrification like what a coincidence is it that all these rich people living you know on the shoreline are like oop we've caught on you know we're actually not we're gonna have a new shoreline that's gonna be closer to the quote-unquote inner city you know like little haiti and liberty city which if yeah, you're they from miami morph, y'all because global warming is real and sea levels are rising they're not trying to live on the bay <laughs> you know so it's like oh not not only do you want to like steal the cultural value of here but also it's like there's some safety that comes with this land yeah and it's literally just like a chinatown manhattan bushwick situation uh Due to just environmental ailments and ailments in general, um, rich people that live on the beach are coming up north because they realize that sea levels are rising and their precious beach houses are soon going to be underwater. So now they're taking towards gentrification, just that north part of Miami, but also because the art scene in general is popping off. And I think that, well, I don't think I know that largely has to do with just like major collectivizing within the Miami area, which I'm fortunate like for Fem Power in Miami in general to just being a facilitator of that. So Miami is popping because I feel like in terms of just like being a city that's slowly like getting on the map, that all has to do with just like I feel like collectivizing is such an integral part because once like minds get together, that's when a scene cr- is created and then more scenes like that eventually follow. So then it's just like a whole scene of just collectives and creatives, which I feel like Miami is slowly um, transitioning towards. But, ooh, I'm sorry, I zoned out. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you know, I think like on, on your point of like collectivizing, when I think of it, you know, I think of it as, like, a potential really, like, effective tool to, like, disrupt the fascism that Miami's really been architectured to thrive off of. Like, you know, for us to be saying, no, we're actually not going to engage in that particular way. Like, we're going to skill share with each other. We're going to resource share with each other. We're going to prepare one another to actually move in a collective way through this world rather than, like, I'm individually looking to see what I can consume or produce to move on up or move in a particular direction. So it's like, for me, I think of it, you know, even some of like the work that we've done, like with the garden, the Fem Power Garden, the book club, like, you know, stepping out of these institutions and saying like, no, nah, we could actually just do this in our living room. Like we actually yeah. don't need the container of like the bourgeois. And I feel like Miami is very just... The one thing that I like about Miami is that it's very 
grassroots and it just comes from just like it's very typical for just like collectives or just people just you know like okay let's just start a cooking club like everyone's in the kitchen right now we all like got some groceries from the farmer's market like let's meet every sunday and just start cooking vegan dishes Mm -hmm. and then we can like do a video or just an instagram in association to that it's just I think it largely has to do with the fact that everyone is like West Indian and South American and everyone's also kind of related to each other. So it's very familial and communal in terms of just the energies. And I feel like the energy in Miami for that is not really reciprocated anywhere else, just in my experience, because in Miami, it's just so tender and it's just very just loving. It's very just like your family. Like we've all really come from the same situation and we're here like living next to the equator in hot ass Miami trying to survive as like black and brown babies. Let's start a group. Let's start a van. (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of corporations are catching on to the fact that like Miami is popping and now they're building spaces. Um, Cough, cough, Glossier, which, oh, can we get into Glossier? (sighs) Oop. I mean, there's, you know me, there's, there's nothing off limits. I I don't I don't owe anything to anybody. So no, it's just like nobody owes me owns me yet. Nobody owes me. Yet. <laughs> you know, it's just like I just think it's very ironic how just I mean, I think Emily Weeks, the CEO of Glossier, she's now a billionaire, by the way. Just had to throw that out there. But I don't know, I just think it's kind of weird for just like a group of like upper Manhattan like white folks to just like impose themselves on a space that's already being like highly gentrified and then like profiting off of like being in a space that's like kicking people out the whole dynamic is just a little bit weird to me and even if you do like community work as well it's really just like you're just in a space and you're profiting off of being in a space that's actively working to kick out people of color which your branding benefits off of so well you know people would you know people see their advertisements and like really think that they would like be on some shit and it's like no just white billionaires white billionaires doing what they gotta do you know just like i mean let's be realistic like who in north miami can afford glossy hair it's like an 18 dollar like lip balm that's essentially just Vaseline, which, like, in the beauty store, you can get for 99 cents. It, exactly. So, just... I mean, again, like, no heat, no shade, no dry, just facts. But, so, we're wrapping up. <laughs> and I'm like, well, partially because we're both out of Crown Royale. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm like, all right, that maybe that's, like, that's, that's our cue. Um, so, <laughs> Mars, can you close us off? What are what's some shit that you're involved in right now or like looking forward to or just like want to put people on to even if it's not directly related to you anything that you know of that you just want people to just be aware of and also can you let us know what are you listening to this week like (laughs) what's what's on your playlist i've been listening to a lot of key glock it's been real radical out here (laughs) (laughs) have you listened to the new tyler yet i did listen to the new tyler um it's really beautiful. Um, just him talking about real sad ass shit over happy instrumentals kind of depicts my emotions this tour season. <laughs> but oh, and that new stallion, you already know what's good. <laughs> Megan just dropped it. 
listen to that. But um, let's see. I've been listening to like a lot of Nick Hakim. I've been going through mm. it. Um, that sounds like some tourist season shit. Yeah, like, some baby really mother. Be, oh, some jungle pussy a lot. Like on some yes. tourist season shit. Like on some good loving. Uh, yeah. A lot of Bob Dylan. I'm really going through it. Wow. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> I'm out. I'm alternating towards like 21 Savage. <laughs> By the time y'all hear this, it's going to be Gemini season. Right. So, um, you know, the Just warmth the will be upon us. But, you know, we're still like on what the last two, three days of, of this. Yeah, we're shit? just like we're slowly trudging along. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> Is there, aside from, you know, your 21 Savage Bob Dylan playlist, is there anything, any work or projects that you're involved in or any shout outs that you want to do before we we head out and get a refill? <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. I'm currently planning some things, but we're going to, it's low key for now. We're going to let y'all go. <laughs> this one's just straight up chewing the ice. Thanks, y'all, for tuning in. This is, again, Venus Roots, a.k.a. Nikki, if y'all actually know me. Ain't nobody calling me Venus Roots. It's just online. <laughs> um, and today, we spoke to Mars Blue.